Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E events, the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E events, the book for me. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This time he says it's very good. That's the first time. And not so much the parts, but he saw all that he had made. Again, reiterating that he is the creator and the maker of everything. No death, because no evil, and no sin, and no fallenness. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. In a letter sent to several pastors, an animal rights group argued that God created animals to, quote, experience pain, fear, sadness, and happiness just as we do, unquote. 
In effect, they said that animals are really not different from people. The group also said that killing animals for food is surely the greatest denial of God in human history. What do you think? The same God who created animals did create us as well. Aren't you somehow disrespecting God? Is it somehow wrong to use his creatures for food? John MacArthur answers those questions today on Grace to You as he considers how the human race got here and what your role in it is. The title of his ongoing study from Genesis chapter 1 is The Battle for the Beginning. To review some specific aspects of God's creation of man, here's John. Starting with the statement, let us make man, just stop at that point, there are four features in the making of man that are outlined here. Four features. The first one is the most defining one. Let us make man in our image, and then it is said immediately another way, according to our likeness, down in verse 27, and God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him. As if we might somehow miss the point, it's repeated four times. Man is made in the image of God. Number two, man is not only made in the image of God, man is the king of the earth. We look at that in verses 26 and 28. In verse 26, after saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, God said, and let them rule. Man then was given this sovereignty at the very beginning. He rises above all the created order and is the sovereign, the king of the earth. Thirdly, we find in creation this is also man's responsibility. It says, verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Now in verse 27, it says that He made them male and female. Now this is the third responsibility of man. He is to manifest the image of God, personhood and relationship. He is to be king of the earth. He is to tend the garden of God and do everything he can in leading and subduing the created order to put God's glorious power on display. And he is the propagator of human life. He is the propagator of human life. So God made them male and female. That was God's design for marriage and procreation. We've been talking about the fact that procreation exists in all of the animal world. There is even a procreative capacity among the plants who reproduce by means of seed or seed in fruit. God gave man relational capacities, and then God gave man a helper. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2 that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living being. And uh, as you read down this passage a little bit, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. This isn't going to work because I'm going to have to keep creating people. He can't have this. I have to make a helper suitable for him. Now, I know what most people think. This means there's somebody to do the dishes, somebody to take out the trash, somebody to make the bed. That's not the kind of helper. He needed help in one main thing. And that was procreation, propagation of the human race. That was the issue here. He needs a helper. He needs a partner. He needs a perfect match. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed everything. But there was something different about the way he formed this helper back in verse 20. Uh, God uh, looked all around his creation, and there, was, there wasn't a partner for Adam. There wasn't, there wasn't anything in the created order that was at his level. 
And we need to keep affirming that now. The, to, to be a human being is not to be a glorified animal. It's to be an eternal being made in the image of God. And there was only one, and that was Adam. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What was there to be ashamed of? Wasn't any sin. So X chromosomes and Y chromosomes were well known to God even though they don't appear in the book of Genesis. The male had the genetic material so that a female could be taken out of him and be genetically related to him in the same kind and then through relationship with her, be able to procreate both male and female. And so together, they fulfill the dominion mandate of verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Fruitful and multiply. Uh, that the technical word for that is fecundity. It means the ability to procreate. And by the way, that's just all through Genesis. I'm not going to take the time, but you can... Chapter 9, God blessed Noah after the flood and his sons and said to them, all right, you've got to carry on this original mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Make babies in the vernacular. Produce children. And in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis, verse 16, speaks about Abraham and Sarah. I'll bless her. Indeed, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings and people shall come from her. In verse 20, as for Ishmael, I will bless him, make him fruitful, and multiply him exceedingly. That's to, to make you fruitful and multiply is the Old Testament expression for procreation. So the male and female design would allow man to procreate, which would allow man wonderful, wonderful responsibility and privilege of producing others in the image of God. What an incredible, incredible blessing. You bring a little baby into the world, that's an eternal person made in the image of God. That's a, and there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. Because that little life has a capacity for relationship. And we have the privilege and the joy of enriching our own relationship in marriage by multiplying and bringing into that union others capable of deep personal communion, conversation, and fellowship. We can enjoy with them the same personal relations that we enjoy with each other. And therefore, God is saying you can extend this dominion over the face of the earth. Fill the earth, Genesis 9-1. Fill the earth. Same thing in Genesis 1-28. Fill the earth. God... Um, Designed marriage, one man, one woman. That's clear from what I read you at the end of chapter 2. The man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. They become one flesh. And the way they become one flesh is in the life that comes from them. Uh, one flesh could mean you have sexual intimacy. One flesh could mean that you think alike and you do things together. But the, the truest and purest expression of one flesh is when both of you come together in one flesh, one life. And that was man's mandate, because in so doing, man multiplies the image of God. That's why we talk so 
so strongly to Christian parents who have little children to understand the stewardship you have from God, to bring that little one made in the image of God back to the knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Man then is created in the image of God. He is created to be king of the earth. He is created to be the propagator of life. And finally, he was created as the recipient of enjoyment. God just wanted to bless him. It says it in verse 28, and God blessed them. God blessed them. He just wanted somebody he could bless. He blessed them. How did he bless them? Well, he blessed them with dominion. He blessed them with the divine image. He blessed them with uh, the ability to have relationships. He blessed them with personhood. He blessed them with the ability to understand His creation. He blessed them with the capability to know Him as well as to know each other. He blessed them with the ability to reproduce themselves and fill the earth with others made in the image of God. And He blessed them one other way. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Now, did you ever ask why it is that God filled this world with such a variety of food, just from the plant side alone, just fruits and vegetables take away man because there's no death at this point, so man is a vegetarian when he's originally created. But there seems to be absolutely no end to all the vegetation, all that grows, that hangs on trees for the joy of man. I mean, I've, I've often thought God could have made a, a brown sky and brown water and a colorless world and rice. And so all you do all your life is eat rice or whatever else. But why did God fill this world with such a vast array of plants and vegetables? It's, it's fruits and vegetables just abound. Every time I go to another culture, another place in the world, I, I'm introduced to another thing that people get out of the ground and eat. It's a pretty astonishing some of them I don't want a second helping of, but <laughs> that probably has more to do with how they're prepared than uh, what could be done for them, you know, like covering them with a lot of cheese or something. Like that. <laughs> but I, I continue to be amazed, you know, and God has accommodated this with uh, another amazing human ability, and that is the ability to taste. You take that for granted, don't you? And the ability to smell. You primarily think you taste, but you really smell more than taste. But God has given us the capability to taste certain things. What a blessing so that we can literally just enjoy the immense bounty that God has provided for us. So Adam and Eve first were vegetarian. They could eat every plant yielding seed on the surface of the earth. Every tree yielding fruit with seed in it was food for them. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. It was so, again, is that uh, sort of punctuation statement that indicates this was the permanent established pattern. Man was a vegetarian, and animals were also vegetarian at creation. Why? Because there was no death. Nothing died. Nothing died. God established this as the original fixed pattern. It was permanent at that time. It was so indicates its permanence. Now, there was just one exception. Chapter 2, 
Verse 9, there was this tree of life in the midst of the garden, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil also. Down in verse 16, and they were commanded, you could, you could eat from the garden anything you want, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. They could eat the tree of life all they wanted, but they couldn't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To eat what was forbidden would devastate the original design, producing death and decay. Well, it's a sad story, isn't it? That's exactly, exactly what they did. Chapter 3 tells the terrible story, and we don't know how much time passed. We don't know whether it was decades or whether it was hundreds of years. But the time came when Eve was beguiled by the serpent. And the serpent lied to her, and she bought the lie. And she disobeyed God, and she ate. And then Adam knowingly disobeyed God and ate. And everything changed. Everything. Chapter 3, verse 19, all of a sudden, taking care of the garden wasn't easy. Well, back, back to verse 17. Because you... Um, have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles are going to grow. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Your whole life is going to be one very, very great challenge. You're going to have to work hard for your food. And then in verse 21 says, the Lord God made garments of skin. Now, that's the first death. In order to make a garment of skin, God had to kill the animal. God killed the first animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and his wife. Down in chapter 4 and verse 4, Abel brought firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. That means he brought an animal sacrifice, killed an animal, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord accepted the death of animals as a sacrifice, which means animal Animal death was inaugurated by God, acceptable to God within the framework of His sacrificial system because, of course, it pointed to the wages of sin, which is death. And God later allowed people to eat meat. Over in chapter 9, when uh, Noah and his sons came out of the ark, uh, God said, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 2, And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to be king of the earth. You're going to have authority over these animals, but they're not going to be uh, amiable to that. They're going to fear you. Every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So don't think being a vegetarian is the Christian way. It was originally the way, but once there was sin, God allowed people to eat meat. And I think that was very, very important because God demonstrated through those deaths originally that uh, there was death for sin. Death required a sacrifice. Death even required a substitute. Now, in the glorious millennial kingdom to come, the question could come up, um, is it going to be the same? Well, no, animals are going to be tame, not wild. But there will be some animals killed during the millennial kingdom for According to Ezekiel 40 to 48, there will be sacrifices held in the millennial temple. So some of them will be killed at least for commemorative feasts in the millennial temple. And sin will exist, as I said, in the millennium. But there will be some return to the original design. Uh, the prophet Isaiah wants us to understand, and I noted some 
reference to that earlier, but he wants us to understand that the world will be to some degree different. The cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den, and, and it, uh, it won't be harmed. So there's definitely going to be some reversal of the curse, though it's not going to be total. In uh, Isaiah 65:25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, etc., and the serpent will eat dust. So there will be some changes. Well, summing it up, God created man in his own image, created man to be king of the earth, created man to procreate, to propagate and fill the earth with others who would be made in the image of God. He created man to enjoy the bounty of his blessing. And when that was all done, verse 31 says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just the parts. He's commented on the parts being good. This time he says it's very good. That's the first time. And not so much the parts, but he saw all that he had made. Again, reiterating that he is the creator and the maker of everything. No death because no evil and no sin and no fallenness. Folks, that ends all possibility of evolution, including any kind of theistic evolution which depends on death. There was no death. Things weren't mutating and dying for billions of years during this time. When God says a day, He means an actual day. And so you come to chapter 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. That's it, folks. There ain't no more. That's the story. It started and ended 32 verses and gave us the complete picture of the created universe and all its wondrous perfection. Do you believe that? God's Word, isn't it? It's God's Word. You're listening to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur, Chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary. His study here on Grace to You is all about equipping you in the battle for the beginning. Well, John, as we've seen today and over these past weeks, what a person believes in terms of evolution and creation does have serious implications. The battle that's being fought has much more at stake than simply what's going to be taught in a child's science class. Yeah, you know, science has just encroached on this doctrine of creation in a horrific way. It is, I think, the part of Scripture that evangelical Christians are willing to give up before they would give up any others. They don't want to give up John 3.16. They don't want to give up uh, the the account of the resurrection. They, they may not even want to give up the story of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. But they, they seem to be in a big hurry to give up creation, hmm. to give up Genesis 1 and 2 uh, under the intimidating heat of uh, science falsely so-called. And I've been saying this all along. You can't explain creation by any scientific process. Science is simply the observation of what is reality. You look at reality and you conclude that this is what is going on. There is nothing to observe about creation except that it's here. How it got to where it is was not observable. No one was there. It's not repeatable either. It's not repeatable. And by the way, we know that because nothing new is created. Right. Since the original creation, 
So the only way we can know what happened is to find out if the Creator gave us an eyewitness account, which He did in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we've been trying to say is science has never said anything or discovered anything that in any way at all alters the Genesis account. It can't alter the Genesis account because it can't intrude into the miraculous. Science only explains what is natural, not what is supernatural. Creation is supernatural. Now, look, I want to remind you that in the series on the battle for the beginning, and it is a battle, we have been tackling a subject that has confused literally hundreds of thousands of professing Christians. It should not be because it steals God's glory and it denies the clear account of Scripture. If you have any remaining questions about this, or if you have some folks you want to share this with, you can get this entire series, The Battle for the Beginning, 12 MP3 downloads from gty.org and um, use them to share with others. Use them with your kids. They may be going through uh, attacks on creation in their school experience or wherever. Get this series so that you can use it to teach others as well. And we also have a book by the same title, The Battle for the Beginning, which is available as well. That's right. And these helpful resources can give you greater confidence in God's Word and what it teaches from beginning to end. Pick up John's book titled The Battle for the Beginning or download the audio series or do both when you get in touch today. Call us toll-free at 855-GRACE or go to the website gty.org. The Battle for the Beginning, the book, is a great reference tool when questions about creation and evolution come your way. The book is reasonably priced and shipping is free. And again, to order The Battle for the Beginning, you can call us at 855-GRACE or go online to gty.org. And if you'd like to download the Battle for the Beginning audio series, you can do that for free at our website, gty.org. In fact, all of John's sermons, over 3,500 total, are free to download at our website. If you want teaching on the family or God's view on work or how to study the Bible or building self-discipline or how to pray, dealing with sin, all kinds of topics like that, you will find sermons on those subjects and a lot more. Again, 3,500 free sermons at gty.org. Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson reminding you to watch Grace to You television Sundays on DirecTV Channel 378 or check our website to see if it airs in your area and be here next week when John kicks off a series that will help you understand why believers worship on Sunday. It's another half hour of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace To You Weekend. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. 
So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. morning, my task is to look at paragraphs four and five and really discuss the the problem of evil, the issue of suffering, the question of theodicy. And let me say at the outset that there's a reason that this is referred to as the, the problem of theodicy. Because we have these truths juxtaposed in Scripture, and they're not resolved to our satisfaction. And what we want is we want to be able to comprehend the mind of God. That'd be awesome. Amen? We'll spend eternity. We'll spend eternity with God and never exhaust the mind of God. That's that's what we want. And this is one of those areas where we have these truths in Scripture, this absolute truth of the goodness of God and the power of God. In fact, that's where we start in paragraph 4. Look at those first lines in paragraph 4. The almighty power, God is all-powerful. The almighty power and unsearchable wisdom. His wisdom is unsearchable. And infinite goodness of God. His goodness is infinite. Now there's about to be a statement here about this issue and this question and this problem of evil and sin. But what we see here is Whatever we're going to do in answering this question, here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to say that sin and evil exist in the world because God doesn't have enough power to deal with it. We're not going to say that evil and sin exist in the world because God was unwise and made a mistake. And we cannot say that evil and sin exist in the world because somehow God is less than good. 
So, so that's where we start. The almighty power, the unsearchable wisdom, and the infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence. Again, these things manifest themselves in his providence. That his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions of both angels and men, and that not by a bare permission. In other words, even the sinful actions of men and angels are not outside of the providence of God. Even those things are part of God's decree. Remember, he executes his decrees through creation and providence. Sin and evil are not outside of God's providence. They are not things that got away from God. Remember where we started? Almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness. Even in the fall, God is manifesting those things. And that not by bare permission. In other words, it, 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 it's not—it's not that God somehow He exercises His sovereignty and His providence. These things are 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 less than ideal, but He permits them to be. No, that's not the answer. Now. We try to make that the answer because we believe that God needs a PR firm. And we know that that sort of, you know, that, that, that kind of thing there, it, 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 makes people, it makes people feel better, right? Some horrible thing happens and we just say, well, you know, God just permitted that. He didn't cause that. He just permitted that. He, he, would, he would never have planned that. When that hurricane came through, and all these things got wiped out and people lost their lives, you know, God, God, God just, you know, he just, he, just, he just permitted that. And we say things like that not realizing the awful implications of that. If God can't control a hurricane, how can he get you to heaven? Hmm? If you can't trust that the hurricane went exactly where God told it to go, then how can you trust that your soul is going to get where God tells it to go? So enough with trying to be God's PR firm. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, infinite goodness of God, so far manifest themselves in the providence, <clears throat> in his providence, that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall. And all other sinful actions of both angels and men, and that not by mere permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully bounded and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Even the fall 
he orders to his most holy ends. Before we get to that last phrase, let's remind ourselves of the definition that we're that we're working with. If you remember, we're borrowing sort of Grudem's definition where where we look at the fact that God creates everything and he gives it its properties. And then he cooperates with these things and their properties. And then thirdly, he causes them to fulfill his purposes. And this last phrase, yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeded only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. That God created the world and he created man in his image. That God created Adam and that he gave him this command. In fact, if we look further, we don't have it here, but if we look further, if we look at the next chapter in the confession, it's of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. That'll be next year. So we're not going to expound on this fully, but let me just read for you that first paragraph. It's the confession that's meant to be understood and taken as a whole. Paragraph one, although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion, willfully transgressed the law of their creator or their creation world, and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Why would God purpose to order that to his own glory? Why would God create Adam in this perfection and innocence and then purpose to his own glory, Adam, to fall? Let me answer that question by answering or asking a few other questions. How do you know what the blessing of a long life is if lives are never shortened? How do you know the blessing of traveling mercies unless some people never make it to their destination? How do you know the blessing of prosperity if nobody has ever experienced want. How do you know the blessing of being fed and fully satisfied if no one has ever experienced hunger? 
How do you know the blessing of waking up healthy and clothed in your right mind if no one has ever experienced illness? And how can you and I talk about the holiness of God if there's never been sick? is how do we put these things together? How do we how do we think about them rightly? Right. Open your Bibles if you have them to Genesis forty five. And we'll see all of this from paragraph four and then we'll we'll say a word about paragraph five by implication. In Genesis 45. Now, Genesis 37 to 50, this is the story of the life of, of Joseph. And we've had the privilege of, of preaching through this portion of Scripture um, here at, at GFBC. Our, our elder team um, preached through this portion of Scripture. And it, it was an amazing journey for the church. It was such an amazing journey. I ended up writing a book about uh, these chapters of the life of, of Joseph. If you know anything about this section of scripture, you know that it starts in chapter 37 with Joseph's brothers and their jealousy and them plotting to kill him, plotting to murder him, not ending up murdering him, but instead putting him in a pit and selling him into slavery. And we see all that Joseph goes through, and ultimately he ends up standing before Pharaoh. His brothers hate him. Because he interprets dreams, and he interpreted dreams for them. <laughs> you guys are going to bow down before me. He ends up um, in prison, and he interprets dreams in prison, the baker and the cupbearer. And then eventually, because he interprets those dreams, he ends up before Pharaoh, because Pharaoh has dreams that need to be interpreted. And he rises to second in command in Egypt because he predicts the coming of a famine. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Store up during the seven years of plenty because those other seven years are coming. And after a couple of years of the famine, his, his brothers come to Egypt because they hear that there's grain in Egypt. And he sees his brothers again. His brothers who put him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And he tests his brothers. Because his brothers didn't bring Benjamin. The reason they didn't bring Benjamin is because Jacob didn't allow Benjamin to go with them. Because remember, Joseph and Benjamin were the children of the wife he loved. And the other brothers were jealous. He sent Jacob off with his other brothers or uh, Joseph off with his other brothers. Jo Joseph never came home. So when it was time for them to go, he didn't let Benjamin go. Joseph sends them to go and get Benjamin, bring Benjamin back, almost as if to say, did you do to my brother what you thought you did to me? 
punishment comes back. Joseph feeds them, sits them at a table according to their first order, gives a double portion to his brother Benjamin, and they know something is going on. Now we come to chapter 45. There's a whole lot more to it than that. But now we come to chapter 45, and Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brothers. And there is much of the theology of paragraph 4 in this scene. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> Madness. They've lived with this for decades. They thought for sure Joseph was dead. And now here he is, alive. By the way, he's not only alive, but he's alive and he's in power. And we did it wrong. The text says that they could not answer him. They literally could not speak. They're terrified of what is about to happen to them because of what they've done. And then in verse 4, we go from Joseph's emotional response to his theological reasoning. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Isn't that interesting? Long-lost brother. Hadn't seen him forever. And he says, hey, it's me, your long-lost brother. Do you think your long-lost brother would have to say to you, come near to me? No, long-lost brother reveals himself to you. You run to your long-lost brother unless you're afraid that he's going to have you killed immediately. Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice how he juxtaposes those two things. He says, and he believes, that God in his providence sent him to Egypt specifically in order to preserve life. It's clear that that's his theological understanding. He understands that providence sent him to Egypt, and providence sent him to Egypt in order to preserve life. But what he doesn't do is blame God for the sinful actions that brought it about. Look at it again. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into 
I'm sorry. It'll be brief. It'll be brief. It'll be brief. I promise. Just 20, 25 years ago, I'm preaching at a conference. College students were, I remember we were in Tennessee. Um, Chris Tomlin is, is doing the music, and, and I'm, I'm preaching. We were, you know, in that, time, in, that in those days, you know, we did a, a bunch of these type of event, events together, and we were having some issues with people's phones. And so I, during one of the sessions, just laid down the law. And I'm like, listen, unless you're a doctor on call or a drug dealer, you can do without your phone. Right, you can do it. I mean, I just laid down the law, so I'm up and I'm preaching during one of the sessions, and this phone keeps going off. After I've laid down the law, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me right now?" Chris Tomlin stands up and brings me my phone, which is the one that was um, ringing. It's basically, you are the man. You are. The man. Yeah. Again, I just could not. If I didn't tell you that, it would have been just all over me for the rest of the time. And I, all right. So here's Joseph with his clear theology, and he's expressing the theology of this paragraph that we just looked at. That that in in God's providence, He uses even the sinful actions of men in order to achieve His purposes. But he doesn't violate the will of men. Men are sinful. They're not, they're not dragged along into their sin by the scruff of the neck, as Luther would say. This is, this is who they are. You do not have to make them do this. Kind of like as parents. You learn very early on as parents. You have to teach your children Almost everything. Sin, you never have to spend one moment of instruction on. Amen, somebody. They get that one without any help, and they get it early. And so both of these things are true, that God in his providence sends Joseph to Egypt to preserve life, and that Joseph's brothers sinned against him and violated the law of God and were under the judgment of God because of the sins that they committed. Both of those things are true simultaneously. In fact, the only time that you see this sort of this sort of direct action with God and sin, it, it's not when God directly causes someone to sin, but it's when God prevents someone from sinning. Yeah, you had Abraham's wife. The only reason you didn't go further than you did, because I stopped you. Amen? Look at a couple of passages of Scripture. That help us think about this. First John chapter two. First John two, beginning of verse fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So these things, they're not from God. James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, there beginning in verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is perfect and holy and righteous. He is perfect in his holiness. He does not sin. He cannot sin. And he does not tempt to sin. And yet, clearly, in his providence, uses the sinful actions of men. Back in our text in Genesis 45, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. By the way, providence of God we see here not only in the sinful actions of men, but also in this drought and in this famine. This whole story, this whole text, this whole section of Scripture is pointing to the providence of God. God doesn't just know that there's going to be a famine. God's the one who sends the famine. God uses the famine. In his providence, he brings about these things, including the famine. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and ruler over the land of Egypt. God sent me here, clearly. And yet, remember back in verse 4, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. And in verse 10, again, 
providence. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all you have. There I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Praise God. Amen. And again, let's be careful here. It's one of the things that, that we like to do. Again, providence is providence is Christian luck, right? Providence is just about the good outcome. Providence is just that then it's providential. But lest you run too fast, headlong into that error, let me remind you of something. Lest you say, see, here is the picture of God's providence. End of story. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God takes bad stuff and he turns it into good stuff. Um, the next book in the Bible is Exodus. Amen? It's not all good in Egypt. And guess what? Genesis. And the life of Joseph, providence of God. Exodus, slavery and hardship in Egypt, providence of God. Providence of God. But what about the next chapter in Not the next chapter, but the next paragraph. One of the things that we tend to do is we tend to think, okay, yes, you know, God, God uses the actions of of, of sinful men, um, but we tend to think that that that's only people outside the camp. And then we see sinful things and we say, well, that sinful thing happened or that terrible thing happened. Uh, therefore, that person must not have really been a believer. That they weren't believers before, but maybe they're believers now. And it's something that's hard to deal with here in Genesis 45, like when the brothers believed, when the brothers didn't believe. But regardless of that, we know this truth, paragraph number five, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God must oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Now, he leaves them to manifold temptations. The Bible tells us very clearly where those temptations come from. Those temptations come from our sinful desires. Amen? So we're not saying here that God is causing these temptations. They come from our sinful desires. Manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts for a number of reasons. One, to chastise them for their former sins. Sometimes God leaves his children in this condition 
to chastise them for their former sins. Sometimes there is that, that direct line and that direct link, that natural consequence of being chastised for your own sins. Or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. Sometimes we go to this place so that we can be reminded of our own deceitfulness and sinfulness. We think too highly of ourselves. We think that we're beyond it. We think that we're beyond temptation. We think that we're beyond sin. We think that we're beyond falling. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And God will use your own sinfulness and corruptions in order to teach you this. Or that they may be humbled. And it does that, doesn't it? It does that. Humbles us. All of these things are true when we fall into sin and corruption. And we can fall into sin and corruption. And unless you don't think that this is only true of a believer and can only happen in a believer's life for a short period. This can happen in a believer's life for months, for years. And our tendency is to say, well, if this is happening, it must be because this person wasn't a believer. How do we know? After that semicolon, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. Does your sin do that? Does it raise you to a more close and constant dependence? Do you hate and despise it when you see it? Again, because for many of us, our tendency is, especially for a new believer, a new believer comes to faith in Christ, you know, old things have passed away, all things are new, we're, we're forsaking things that, that we used to love and enjoy, because we're a new believer, so it's the big sins, right? And the big sins are being dealt with, and the big sins are falling away, and then the next thing you know you fall into something. And the immediate tendency, especially for the new believer, is to say, oh, well, I must not really have been saved. And so we run to church and we go through the whole rededication thing and sometimes want to be rebaptized because I must not have really been a believer because I sinned again. Amen, somebody. You need to understand this doctrine. Otherwise, every other week, You'll be looking to be baptized again. 
this raises us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon God. We need to turn that corner as Christians. We need to turn that corner from going, oh, wow, I sinned. It must mean I'm really not a Christian. To turning that corner to say, wow, I sinned. My need is more desperate than I thought it was. And if I can just put a footnote here, there's usually a correlation between this first part of it and us us being left in corruption and sins for a season. There's usually a correlation between that and us removing ourselves from the ordinary means of grace. And it's kind of a which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? We don't have to know which came first. We just have to know that there's a correlation. All all the years that I've been in pastoral ministry, I've never run into a Christian who has said to me that they're attending to the ordinary means of grace faithfully and also saying to me that they're finding themselves in one of these ditches that we talked about in the first half. Usually, as we find ourselves in these seasons of sin and corruption, we remove ourselves from the ordinary means of grace. Which is why in pastoral ministry, one of the most important things that we can do is keep up with people's attendance. Not not for being controlling, but because of this correlation. When a believer is not faithfully and regularly attending to the ordinary means of grace, it's usually a sign that something's wrong. So it brings us to this greater dependence. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Going through one of these seasons makes us more dependent, and then it makes us more watchful. The same is true physically, is it not? You go through some physical ordeal. And when you go through that physical ordeal, you become more watchful. If you have an automobile accident, and all of a sudden, what does it do? You go through an automobile accident, and you survive that automobile accident, and all of a sudden, here you are at 10 and 2. And that text can wait. Amen, somebody. It makes you more watchful. You go to the doctor and the report or the report is the report is not so good. All of a sudden you sit down at your meals and you're making different choices. You become more watchful. This is the spiritual reality there. 
and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. So, lest we think that this issue of God's providence and using even the deeds of sinful men for his glory somehow does not cover the sinful deeds of Christians. Just know that nothing could be further from the truth. And if you find yourself or have found yourself in one of these seasons, may I just urge you to attend faithfully to the means of grace. Those ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer. Be found there with the people of God. And let me just add this before I close. Because I believe in this correlation, I believe that during this season, and again, we don't need to get into, I'm not trying to get into all of the, you know, governmental this or that or the other of our current situation. That's a whole other conference. Regardless of what you think or what you feel about shutdowns of churches, I know this, cannot remove Christians from the ordinary means of grace for extended periods of time and not expect there to be spiritual consequences in the lives of believers. And I'm not saying that just to point at government officials, right? Uh, we do need to point that we need we do need to point at government officials and say that, but right here right now I'm pointing to you, because some of you think that you could spend months away from the ordinary means of grace and just be okay. That's like an Olympic athlete believing that they can spend months away from training and then just wake up one day and go compete. That's how you pull something. Amen? So I'm saying we need to examine ourselves. Are you finding it easier to make excuses for not going to church? Are you finding it harder to be in the midst of the brethren? Are you finding it more difficult to attend to the word, to pray? Just know. Just know that it's impossible for us to stay away from these ordinary means and to stay away from the body and from the brethren. without experiencing the ill effects thereof. When we do find ourselves there, remember the second half of this. 
Pray that God, by his grace, would make you more dependent. Pray that God, by his grace, would make you more watchful. Pray that God, by his grace, would bring you to repentance and restore you to intimate fellowship. And know that God in his providence is not surprised. And that in his providence, he's also given you a way of escape and a way back home. Amen? That's right. That was Lord, you welcome with the providence of God and resistance of evil. That's the sermon. Uh, Lord, you welcome spelled V-O-D-D-I-E, then V-A-U-C-H-A-M. And with that dot Thanks for listening to me with Control here on Tricky Toll Radio. And i do one from Answers and Jeff. Parents, you need a biblical worldview. This is Ken Ham, and we produce the popular Answers Bible curriculum. What you believe determines what you pass along to your children. And sadly, only 2% of U.S. parents with young children have a biblical worldview. And why does that matter? Well, you can't give what you don't have. This is why we're seeing such godlessness among the younger generations. 98 out of every 100 parents can't give their children a biblical worldview, even if they wanted to, because, well, they don't have one to give. But you can develop a truly biblical worldview and pass it along to your children. But it starts with one key thing. Read your Bible, all of it, beginning with Genesis. There's so much more to learn when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. I'm Melissa Kentula, and thanks for listening for Truth Be Told Radio, and we're going to go out with Yankee and Friends and the B.I.B.L.E. Bye for now.